This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 259. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. Today, I have an amazing guest for you. Her name is Debbie Boone and she is a certified veterinary practice manager with a BS in animal science. She's a veterinary business consultant, is fear-free certified, and has served on the board of directors and is currently past president for Vet Partners. She acts as an advisor to various veterinary support businesses. She's a talented speaker, and she has a new book out called Hospitality in Healthcare. Welcome to the podcast, Debbie. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you, Julie. I appreciate the invitation to come. Yeah, thanks for joining me. I think we're going to have a blast. I think we are too. And I have read some of your books, so I'm I'm kind of like partway through it. It's on my Kindle and I keep jumping from book to book. So <laughs> it's really good. You did a great job. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. About that. Yeah. So the first thing I always ask my guests is to tell me their veterinary story. And you have one because you you ended up in the veterinary industry. So tell me how that all happened, you know, as far back as you want to start. As far back, well, I typically veterinary story. I was a kid, I was five years old. I was determined to be a veterinarian. Uh, it was the only intention I had in my life. And so when I applied to school, I applied to one college and my mother just freaked out. She said, are you sure this is, you only want to apply to one college. That's how it was then, right? Yeah. You, yep. you applied to the one you wanted to go to. What, NC State. <laughs> so I said, yes. And she, she said, what if you don't get in? I went, I'll get in. And unfortunately I did. <laughs> so I uh, I went to undergrad, um, pre-vet, animal science curriculum. And after four years, I went, you know what? I'm done. Plus they were supposed to build a vet school in the time I was there in undergrad and they didn't get it done. So um, I would have had to go like to Cornell or something. In fact, I was asked if I wanted to go to Cornell. My brother was playing football there, and I went, "No, I hate cold weather." (laughs) (laughs) You wanted to stay in the South? No, not nothing north of the Mason-Dixon line for this girl. So I stayed in the South. But um, I, my family owned restaurants, and so I started managing restaurants. But I still always had the love of the science, the love of the animals in the back of my head. And so my husband and I moved to Greensboro, North Carolina, and I went around to every veterinary hospital and applied for a job. And fortunately, I got one. And the funny way I got it was the lady who hired me actually was a customer at our restaurant. And she was a big fan of our barbecue beef ribs. <laughs> so- <laughs> so she was there often. <laughs> she was there a lot. And fortunately, she got good customer service. So, um, yeah, I got hired because of a plate of ribs, I say, and then, you know, that, that in the background, hey, whatever it takes, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I worked as a part-time receptionist for about six months left. Uh, you know, it was a minimum wage job. I was going to starve. So I left and went to manage a fabric shop because my grandmother was a seamstress and taught me how to sew when I was a little girl. Um, I ran the fabric shop for a little while. I then left there, went to manage a jewelry department in a, like a large big box retailer. And I sold one of the associate veterinarians a watch one day. And I said, well, tell Dr. Cobb, I said, hello. Well, two days later, I got this phone call and it was, uh, you need to come and talk to me. My wife is sick of me coming home every night at 10 and 11 o'clock after work as the practice owner. And she says, I need a manager. <laughs> 
So I said, okay. So I went over and I I talked to him and I got the job as the hospital administrator. Now they had never had one and they had an office manager who was an RN who had been there for a long time. Who's the lady who hired me. And my job description was word for word. I don't know what you're going to do, but here. And so I really (laughs) figure it out. (laughs) <laughs> I made up my job. And fortunately, because my parents had owned businesses and I had had business training as a child, I knew the path of where I wanted to you go. I knew, yeah, what needed yeah. to be done. So, uh, you know, I just started managing the hospital and, and gradually over time, I was there for 19 years. And of course, it started out kind of as a, a glorified bookkeeper and receptionist. And then there was a little more responsibility and the, the doctor would give up a little more responsibility. And I always tell managers this because they, they fuss because they get micromanaged. And I said, well, management, you know, to, to turn over a business to someone, you have to develop trust with them and nobody's going to trust you just because you have a title. Right. You've got to learn how to trust you and that you are trustworthy. So that takes time and, and you have to have patience with that. So yeah, over the 19 years I worked there, I started out just kind of keeping books with every time I wrote a check, he was looking over my shoulder to make sure it matched an invoice. <laughs> that you weren't stealing his money, right? It, right, exactly. Because that right. happens. Yeah, it, it happens it, a lot. It happens. It happens big when it's the manager running off with the cash too. Yeah, um, and that, it, it got to the point where I was hiring the veterinarians. I was hiring and firing people. He didn't even know the names of the people who worked there a lot of times. And for the last six months before he retired, he lived in a different state and didn't even work in the practice. So he really grew to trust you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he looked at me one day and he said, Debbie Boone, if you ever steal from me, I'm coming after you with a shotgun. And I went, (laughs) you won't have to worry about that. And fortunately, I mean, because I really, I talk about checks and balances as a business consultant all the time. And I had very few checks and balances. Oh, um, really? He didn't, he didn't, he didn't do his job by checking checking up on you huh after a while he just he didn't knew he didn't have to I guess I think that's the the yeah yeah but I still don't advise it uh, to turn somebody loose the way I was turned loose um but you know it was I think after after a long period of time uh and I'm not saying he didn't check up you know he might have checked up I didn't even know it right he had no reason to to doubt and we did have an accountant who came every month and we ran over our profit and loss statements. And if anything was out of whack, you know, it had to be explained. And so I was, you know, really judicious about keeping everything. I mean, I kept receipts for $2 if, you know, I was that, that kind of high compliance personality style. Right, right. So I, you know, it, it was, it was all documented. I never, never had a worry about not being able to document anything I spent in the hospital. And it ran well and it was profitable and he retired with three homes. And so I don't think he really had anything to complain about. <laughs> he did. Okay. He did. <laughs> you made him some money. I did. I yeah. did. So what did you love about being a manager? Cause I mean, I've been a hospital owner, mm-hmm. so, but I think there's a difference. Yeah. Like I, ma- I managed my hospital, but then I had a manager as well. Right. I think there's right. a, there's a, a difference there. Is it? For me, I was a lot of the buffer between a very strong practice owner's personality style mm. and my own, which is really kind of laid back. And it's not that the, the people didn't have accountability and, and didn't have, you know, to 
to toe the line, so to speak, to perform appropriately. But my practice owner was in personality style, very high driver personality, get her done, you know, check it off. Which a lot of owners are like that, right? They are. They are because they're very brave and they're risk takers and they don't, they're not afraid of taking risks. But then um, it also is very difficult when you have a lot of people who work for you who are very highly empathetic because they work in animal health because they love animals and they tend to get crushed fairly easily emotionally if somebody comes at them like pile driver. So I was the, I was the middleman for that. Yeah, you do need that, right? Yeah, you do. And so I, I really appreciated that fact. And I loved um, the peopling part of it. For me, it was supporting my team. It was helping them through personal crisis. It was making sure that I was doing things that supported them in their career goals Um, I told somebody the other day, one of the things I look back on and am most proud of in my career is that nine of the veterinary assistants or kennel attendants that I hired in my practice as kids went on to veterinary school and not only went there, but went to own and uh, and own their own practice. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah. That's something to be proud of. Yeah. It is. And they were successful practices. You know, that's the other thing. And they, because they learned um, how to make a little magic in practice. And I think that's, that's what maybe sometimes is missing in a lot of our hospitals where you can't drive people for numbers. It, I've always believed that if you get the people right, the numbers show up and kind of, it's a long-term game rather than in the moment we've got to meet this, you know, this budget. Well, if I have 10 people out with the flu then I'm not going to meet my budget for overtime because my staff is going to have to, you know, pitch in and do some. Right. Right. You can't send them home when they're going on overtime if you don't have anyone else. (laughs) So So as long as that's something I can explain, then that's fine. But that's, that's not going to happen all the time because if I have overtime consistently, that just means I don't have enough staff or I'm unorganized with my workflows and I need to do a better job of that. Um, and people need to go home, you know, so my, when I ran practices, I was very much an advocate for my team. I believe that they should have lunch and they were scheduled um, an hour every day. And it was, you took lunch uh, and our doctors took lunch. Actually, they took two hours for lunch. And then we went home at night um, after closing. We were there probably no more than 15 minutes after closing uh, 90% of the time. And if we had something that caused us to stay late, usually I would stay because I was an exempt employee and I would send the, my people home and say, I got it, you know, or I would stay late and wait for a client who was going to come late because they got stuck in traffic or something like that. I would be that person. So I feel like people feel like in medicine, they can't control the workflow. And that's a lie we tell ourselves because you absolutely can control your workflow. Um most of the time. And is there going to be an emergency? Of course, of course you can, but you have to expect that once in a while, but it shouldn't be every day. No, it should not be every day. The norm should be, we go to lunch, we pee when we need to, and we go home on time. And that's the way the normal should be. Um, And I don't find that much in a lot of practices out there in the world because they've told themselves they have to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with you. I think I, I hear from a lot of my veterinarians that I talk to that their practice owner 
or their manager, I mean, I guess it's probably both because that's the team, right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't have that same philosophy. So if that's the case, like if you're working at a practice where they don't have that philosophy that their people are valuable and come first, is there something that someone can do within that practice to change that? Or is that like, I have to quit and go to a better environment? And, you know, I guess there, there's two good answers to that, right? Well, you know, always, if I always encourage people to voice their concerns to their managers, sometimes it will fall on deaf ears because the manager can't see themselves out of the own hole they've dug. And that's where consultants come in because we're the outside eyes that that allow you to see how to change the workflows and how to get out of the box you've kind of built for yourself. So if enough of the people come to the manager and go, this is really not working for us, but they don't come to them as a constant gripe and complaint because that's kind of fruitless, come and say, hey, I think if we change this, if we do it this way, I believe that we could get out in time or I believe that this workflow would work better. So come with solutions and not complaints. I love that. that way the manager has a better opportunity to say, okay, because I, you know, as a manager, I never worked as a technician. Um, I did a little bit of assisting, you know, if I saw somebody struggling with the dog is trying to back its butt off a table, I'd come and like grab its rear end and, um, and, arc- and I could open a pack appropriately. And I, I knew how to, you know, uh, hand suture to people or, uh, you know, and monitor a little bit of anesthesia, but I certainly wasn't going to do that. I mean, that's not right. what I was there for. Um, so I think that the managers have to understand that if they start to listen to the team, the people who are actually doing the work that the solutions will come from the team if you if you open the avenue for that. Um, to give you a, a, just a, the most simple example, this is this is kind of one of the, the simplest and funniest things that ever happened to me as a consultant, is I was working, I was called in to work with a practice that was on its third owner. The practice had opened back in the 60s, and the two people who worked the front desk had been there since the doors opened. But they had been through the the first owner retired second Two changes owner, yeah. it, and then now it was the third owner, and the third owner had called me in and she said every day at four o'clock this place is an absolute zoo and we cannot figure out why in the world it is just a mess. And so I said, okay, well I'll come and I'll just you know I'll sit in your lobby and I'll just monitor and I'll see what's going on. Well, I spent the whole day there watching and listening to <laughs> what was going on, and I figured out that the two CSRs who had been there 35 years, were so used to telling people to come to pick up their surgical cases at four o'clock. They didn't make discharge appointments for them. They just told everybody. And they were doing 15 surgeries a day. So they all showed up at the same they time. all showed up at four o'clock. And, <laughs> and I they said, didn't realize that was a they problem. Didn't, they couldn't see out of it because they've been doing it for 30 years. Yeah. And so I asked them the, you know, the, the same day in the afternoon, I said, okay, here's, here's what I see tomorrow when you check these animals in for surgery could you just say pick them up at 3 3 15 3 30 3 45 yeah they said we could do that <laughs> we never thought about it right what a novel concept so yeah it's the we've always things. done it that way right they had always done yeah it that way. yeah when you're in a practice with 
um, that's been around for a long time, yes. like mine was that had owners from like the sixties. Yeah. It's really hard to change that because a lot of the employees, they were trained by the old ways yes. and yeah, it, yeah. that's something. But the next day, smooth sailing. It was just All better. You fixed them just like that. Oh, see, well, everything was that easy to fix. It would be great. <laughs> but they just, they couldn't see their way out of it because they right. couldn't see what they were doing that caused it. And right. They, nobody, nobody had that light bulb go off over right. their head. Exactly. Hey, if they we just change it, this, it'll be easier. From afar. Right. So, you know, that's the first thing. Now, the second thing is realize that the team builds the culture. So if the team says, okay, we want to get out of here at 15 minutes after closing, what do we got to do together? as a team to do that, to make that happen. And you do everything that you can to make that happen. And then you show that it's possible because there's, again, it was, it was me showing that it was possible to not tell everybody to come at four o'clock, right. smooth the workflow, but the team can get together and say, okay, let's, let's do this. Let's show that it's possible or show that we don't have to work through lunch. How can we figure it out? Can we change the workflows? And then you, you try to proof of concept. Sometimes that is, you know, an, an easier way to do it. And I, I laughingly tell a lot of managers who are stuck in some ruts and they say, well, I don't know if my practice owner will do this. And I went, well, in my opinion, it is easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> don't and ask so, them, just try it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know as a hospital owner, I don't know if I like that idea, but I, I get where you're coming from because I did it too. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I'm not talking about, you know, like, Big, big stuff, right? Yeah, but little big. stuff that they don't even, they wouldn't even notice, right? Like there's so exactly. many things that would happen in my practice and somebody changed something and I'd find out weeks later, I'd be like, hey, when did we do this? Right. Oh, we did that a long time ago, Dr. Capel. Well, it, it, you know, and it, a lot of times, the, like you said, the practice centers don't even know that this stuff is is doing, is they're doing that. And Margie certainly didn't know they were telling Or her. sometimes they don't know the problems, right? Right. Because right. people are afraid to tell them, you know, going back to that whole personality thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's where the manager comes in is they're the sounding board and the buffer between the practice owner and and gathering that information and saying, you know, tell me about, you know, how does your, how are your workflows? You know, what do you, what are you frustrated with uh, mm -hmm. in this practice? And then you can find a solution and take the solution to the owner and say, hey, the team is really, really frustrated with this ancient anesthesia machine and, and or this this software. And the software is causing them to waste at least two hours of time a day watching the little wheel spin. So we need to do this. And I've looked up, you know, several different softwares. I've done the demonstrations work and I believe that this is this one will work for us and this is how much it, much it costs. And I feel like we should strategically plan to invest in that in the very near future because of we need we need to speed up our workflows and so there you bring it to the practice owner with logic and information you just don't go oh my god we need a new software system I have no idea how much it's going to cost you know the manager's job is to do the research and make the plan and then bring it to the practice center a practice owner's job is strategy where do I want to take the practice in the future what do you know? Do I want to grow it to multiple doctor practice? Do I want to grow to multiple location practice? What is my exit strategy for myself? Um, a lot of times people are shocked when I start a consultation with them. And the first thing I ask them is, What is your plan for retirement? Mm. Because they're, you know, they're 10, 15 years away from it. A lot yeah, of times, that's an interesting question, that. though, because a lot of owners don't think that way, right? No. 
And I said, you should start planning for retirement the day you unlock the door as the new owner. Mm, interesting. Because you need to first pay yourself first, have a retirement plan in place, understand that you can't pilfer out of your cash drawer and expect to have clean data that a new practice owner will want to come into your practice and make an investment because they don't really know how much money you are spending if you're paying your spouse or your kids for work or you're not paying your spouse and your kids and they do work. Right. Um, you know, you're paying your own housekeeper and yard person out of your own. And all this stuff happens. And, and people who do um, uh, evaluations know that. And so they know how to normalize things, but you can't be so extreme with it that the data is complete garbage. And so that's why I'm saying you need to keep, keep what I call ridiculously clean books in your practice in order to, to look for that long term. And the other thing is, how are you going to help your staff retire? If you want somebody who's going to stay with you and you're going to retain them long time, you need to help them be able to have a safe retirement too. So what plans and strategies do you have in place for them? Um, and looking after your team with benefits and health insurance. And uh, obviously we all do pet care. That's you know kind of a no brainer in our world, but there's more ways to look after your team than just that. And then going back to being, being, you know, so um, obsessed with the strategy of keeping your money clean, then you really know what you can afford. Because if you are, right. you know, just spending money willy-nilly, handing your kids 20 bucks out of the drawer, things like that, you don't know how much money you really do have or how much money you really are making. And right. that's your strategy for retirement. Yeah. And I think, I think so many of us as veterinarians don't have really solid business training. Mm -hmm. Like that was not something I, I was lucky because my dad is an accountant and my mom worked at a bank. So oh, yeah. they're both very money savvy. And so for me, when I bought my practice, I had that backup. You know, my dad could do my books or at least help me. I, I learned it because I wanted to do it. I wanted to know how, what, what to do. Right. But then he would help dig me out of a hole if I couldn't find something or, you yep. know, and help me get that straightened out. Um, but so few of us have that business mind. Yes. And so like, what would be your recommendation for somebody that's thinking about buying a practice? They're younger, you know, maybe a few years out of school and they're like, yeah, I'd really like to be an owner, but it's so scary and it's so expensive. And I have student loan debt, you know, all that scary stuff that happens. Yeah. What would be your advice to them about how to get themselves educated enough right. to do what they need to do to be an owner, but also hire a, a good manager? Cause I got, you know, I had a manager once that was kind of good, but then ended up burning me, you know, and I've heard other stories of other, you know, friends of mine that got embezzled and, okay. you know. Yeah. Well, I have a whole talk about embezzlement. And uh, like I told you before we started, I laughingly said I was not, I did not have checks and balances like I should have as the manager. But well, well, that's the way with a lot of vets, right? It, it is. They, they're not business trained. And so they don't have, they don't know what to look for. Right. You know, they don't know how to cover their butts and not yeah. let the manager well, I think, do everything. I think one, of the, one of the very simplest tools that you can do as a practice owner is to have your bank statement come to your home and not your business. And then make sure you are reviewing it every single time it comes in, because we have a tendency to just let the manager balance the books or let, you know, an outside party, a bookkeeper balance the books. And we never really look at it. 
And so we want to look at that every single month when it comes and we want to run a PL every single month. And that's the other thing I don't see people doing. They don't look at this until the end of the month when their accountant does their taxes. And the problem with that, I give it to this similarly to a diabetic cat. So you have a diabetic cat and you never run a glucose curve on it until it crashes. Well, then it's a little too late to do anything about right, it. So right. you monitor it until you get it stabilized and you realize that all the systems are in place and that you are, um, you know, doing things appropriately. So those P&Ls are your blood work for your practice. And that's what you're looking at to diagnose it. But I have had three practices who hired me either a year to six months before they unlocked the doors. Oh, that's a great idea, right? And the it great thing about proactive, we, we laid the foundation. We had employee manuals, job descriptions. We had financial systems in place. We had a marketing plan. We had their strategy um, and for how they were going to market this business. And it, it was a beautiful timeline. And, you know, it's not always going to be perfect because, a lot of business plan is pure guesswork. And, and right. Yeah. Even somebody, your budgets, you try oh, to make a budget and it, it is a little bit of guesswork. It, right? It's a guessing game because yeah. the only, the advantage of buying an existing practice is that you do have some data that you can use right. to build this budget, but as a very new practice and somebody who's just starting out, you don't have that. So we, you know, we also look at the pricing strategies. What am I going to sell? How do I the, the warning I always give brand new practice owners is you get really excited about the buy-ins. When you start a new practice, and you probably remember this, Julie, when you bought your practice, all the sales reps come to you, you can buy one, get one free, or we have this dating. and we have If you pre-order this amount, oh, you get it cheaper, and, and then you you've got it. all this heart. It was heart guard back in the day. Oh, all gosh, yeah. Heart sitting on the shelf, right? Get all this stuff in. Yeah. Well, the problem is you don't need it. And you might not use it. So if it's some right. kind of obscure shampoo that you can buy a case and get a case free, well, that sounds like a good idea. But the problem is you're not going to sell it. It's going to take you 10 years to sell what you've got. And so it's right. just not money up for no reason. And you can't send it back. So sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. So one of the things that I try to teach new practice owners is to not get excited because sales reps, I love my sales reps. They have done mm, yeah. wonderful things for me. But their job is to sell you stuff. And right. you got to keep. And that's how they get paid. That is how the more they, they sell you, the more they get paid. Exactly right. So you have to be judicious and buy from, you know, the ones that do have your best interest at heart. And they do. I mean, they really want you to be successful because your success is their success. Right. But they also see that, you know, putting in a, an initial opening order like that is a big boon to their sales numbers for the year. And so you've got to be careful of that and looking at as a practitioner, this is what I coach people. When you practice, I want you to, because most of them are starting out as an associate, right? right. So I want to look at what you touch every single day. What do you pick up? What products do you touch every single day? Make a list of those things. Those are only the things that you will do a buy-in for. Because those are the things that like you're a, a list products. A -list I think we used to call them. I went through a training yes. thing where you had to have that's a, right. B, you C. Score them. You yep. score them. That's right. Yep. These are your a products. And that's what you buy on the deals, the initial opening orders. And that way you can sell them before you have to pay for them, which is the goal of any right. kind of special or deal that you buy in practice. So it's, you know, it's not hard to run a business. 
but there are very specific rules to running a business. And yes. once you know the rules, then you can, can maintain the business fairly well. And I feel like it's just teaching the rules. So veterinarians are extremely intelligent. I mean, obviously they all are. So there's right. not that they can't learn this stuff and they're scientific thinkers. And that's a lot of businesses thinking diagnostically about what's right. happening in the business. So when you're teaching somebody to diagnose their business, like they diagnose a patient, then the light bulb kind of goes off and mm -hmm. they understand, you know, what, what you're doing here. Um, otherwise, it can be overwhelming to think, oh God, there's all these numbers and all this data and all these reports. You don't really need to do all that kind of deep dive. That comes later. That comes when you are really financing it. But to learn how to just the basics of running a business, it's like running your household. You know, it right, is like right. a budget in your household. The money comes in, money goes out, making judicious purchases, and then trying to to purchase things that uh, make your life better. And so for us, is we, let's purchase things that make life better for our patients, but that also are wise decisions for our business. So you can't just buy stuff because it sounds cool. Because it's fun. And, yeah, and use it once a year. Toys, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to reiterate what you said at the beginning of this little segment when you said, have the bank statement sent to your home. Absolutely. When I was very new at, with my practice, I went to a CE and I don't even remember the gentleman's name, but it was a business CE. And he said, when you're the owner, there's three things you should only do. Like there, these are the things you have to do. One of them was open all your own mail, which is kind of the same, like send it to your home. So you're opening it. So that would mean the bills and the bank statements and the credit cards, which I, I've seen people get embezzled on their credit cards a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so he said that. So I, oh, I never let anyone open my mail at the hospital. Um, but I like your idea better of coming into your home because then they can't sneak it out before they put it on your desk. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, the other one was don't ever let anyone sign your checks. Yes. Now that was in the days when you actually had to sign checks and right. now it's, it's different. Yes. Um, but I just held to, I didn't let anyone have access to my bank account. Mm -hmm. you know? And then I always had a rule with my manager that you can spend up to this much money without my permission, mm -hmm. but anything that's more expensive, I don't remember what it was, 200, 500, whatever, then you have to come and we have to have a conversation about right. it. Right. But I think that that opening your own mail and, and looking at those bank statements and being the one that kind of goes through and makes sure your PL is run really saves a lot of people from getting into trouble. Well, I, you know, when I was writing this, this uh, presentation on embezzlement, I had two good friends who were police officers and I had the opportunity to, to ask them one night, why do people steal? I mean, I just, this is a concept that- It's really hard to fathom, right? Like how do yeah. they live with themselves? Right, right. And especially when they are to your face, like your best friend, right? right. Their partner and, you know, so why do people steal? And Kevin said, it's a crime of opportunity. Mm -hmm. That people, you know, they'll like one day they're short $5 for lunch. And so they said, well, I'll borrow it out of the cash drawer and I'll put it back tomorrow when I come back to work. Yeah. And nobody pays attention to it because oh the cash drawer is five dollars short. We must have given the, somebody the wrong. We'll change. figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out, and we just roll on. Well, then they go. Oh well, nobody paid attention to it. So maybe the next couple of weeks I'll pull twenty out, 
And then, you know, and so it goes goes like that. And the other thing he said was they self-justify it. Yes. Because they feel like they deserve it Mm -hmm. and they are not getting paid sufficiently. And the owner has a lot of money. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Which is really sad. It's the same reason they steal from corporations and stores, right? Because they think, oh, they have lots of money and I don't. Right. Well, or they, or they, you know, insurance fraud, the insurance company will pay for it. Well, we all pay for it because we pay insurance premiums that cost more money because of defrauding companies. And I can remember when I was in high school, my best friend worked in a department store and they intentionally raised the prices of product merchandise because of theft of course shoplifting and she said no most of the stealing is done from employees Mm, yeah they say that I mean I've heard that so many times even in vet med like if you don't think dog food's walking out your door or heart guard or like if you you don't think it's happening it's happening it's happening it's absolutely happening and and I think that again going back to this checks and balances when you look at categorizing a, a pet food because it is it's like one of the number one heartworm preventative in pet food right um then you should be able to look at your profit and loss statement and go i know that on average i make a 35 percent profit margin on pet food and i can have my cornerstone or whatever your software uh, sales reports over here i know how much i sold of it i know how much i bought of it because here's my invoices from the distributor and why where is the disparity there? Because I'm not making enough money off of this, or maybe I'm going in the hole. And then you tracking it like what you feed in the kennel. That's the other part of it. Right. It's really about putting systems in place to track these things. And even we had a huge boarding facility. We boarded a hundred animals in our hospital. And so food moved through that our practice. Yeah. But there was a very strict chart of who got what food and when it was opened and it was sent up to one of the CSRs, they took it out. They charged it to a clinic account. We knew how much money we spent every month in in-house product use, which was about $3,000. And if it got over that, or if it looked out of whack, then there was an alert, right? We knew something was off somewhere. And, you know, for us, our our food was stocked at the back door. So you could have picked up a bag of food, walked right at the back door and probably nobody would have seen it well and so many so many employees are there after hours alone and like you really can't be there Mm-mm. and watch these people you know I even had years ago at my practice um and and I don't think they even realized that this was stealing but they needed cash to go buy lunch and so what they would do is they would take their credit card and swipe it like a sale and then take the cash out of the drawer yes and it took me a while to figure that out. I was like, what the heck's going on? You know, what, what are we selling for five bucks and 10 bucks? And, and finally I was, it like dawned on me that this is what they were doing. And they didn't understand that the business pays fees on those credit cards. So you're literally stealing, right? Because you're taking that cash that I don't have to pay fees on and swiping your credit card. And like, that was just such a like mind blown to me. It's like, who would ever think that people would do that? Well, you I know, worked, good, good people. They, like, these were my good people. They didn't even realize they were they stealing. Yeah, they didn't mean to do it. I mean, they were actually. No, but like, how did they think of that idea? I'm like, oh, my gosh. An ATM, basically. Seriously, that's exactly what they were doing. And I kind of lost it. I was like, are you kidding me? This is actually happening. And and it was like one person had started it and the other people had seen it. And they're like, oh, then I don't have to go to the ATM. I was like, right. oh, 
Yeah. You know? It's yeah, it'd be it's, harder to do now because most people use credit cards and there's yeah. not a lot of cash in the drawer, but you it's know, when there was a lot of cash, it was like, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I worked with a practice town in Georgia that was, they actually had three locations and a girl had borrowed $4,000. <gasps> And, and I borrowed you know, yeah. without asking. Me. Right. Oh yeah. She was, she was just, <laughs> yeah, I've had that happen too. Taking, and, but she was documenting it, that she was taking it out of the drawer. And I said to the practice owners, this girl is, is stealing from you. I mean, she's yeah. documenting what she's taking, but she's taking it from you. And they said, oh, we thought she just owned, owed uh, for pet care. And well, it's, even then that was bad. And I said, yeah, I said, I've been here like two hours and I found and this. You notice this. Yeah. <laughs> You've been here all You're your not life. paying attention. Yeah. You're not paying attention to this stuff and something has wow. to happen. And, and, you know, come to find out she was in a bad situation where her husband was abusive and he controlled everything. And she was really trying to get out of that. So what they ended up doing was transferring her to a different hospital where the practice manager, the hospital administrator had complete control over what she did and, yeah. and got her to pay it back because she said otherwise we would never get the money back wow. and help her get out of the situation. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you have to you have to kind of look at it that, you know, how how much do I want to help these help people and, right. and make that decision. But it it is your decision to make as to how you help others. I've kind of scratched my head and went, <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't know that I would keep that employee, yeah. but that's yeah. just me. I'm sure I, I I kept a lot of people I probably shouldn't have kept for a while because I'm yes. a softy. Yes. I always wanted to fix everyone, right? Yes. So um, I'd love to hear about your book a little bit okay. um, before we before we run out of time. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? And then we can come back another time because I have a lot of things I want to talk to you about. Okay. okay. <laughs> I well, want to go through all the client stuff. I want to um, go through all of this well, with you. But the, the book tell me about your book. The book has a lot to do with client stuff, but it, yes. it is about the people part of medicine. And when I wrote the book, I deliberately straddled the fence between veterinary medicine and human medicine, because not only am I a, a long-term manager of people in the practice, but I also am a breast cancer survivor of 20 years. Oh, wow. I had multiple health experiences, let's, let's call it that way. And so growing up in the restaurant business, I was trained hospitality skills from a child and growing up in the South, it's another layer on top of that. Southern people are really nice. It is about hospitality, making yeah. people feel welcome and, and um, looking after them. So I thought, wow, you know, this is how I managed my practices. I trained my team to use that Southern hospitality to make people come into the practice um, feel like they got a great experience, no matter what was going on with their animal. It was really very much about the humans. And because that's all I knew, that's, that's how I knew to treat people. And thinking about the way you go into a restaurant where you are a regular and people know what you eat every Wednesday for lunch and they know what you drink. It's always your drink or being a bartender and you set somebody's drink down because they're a regular at your bar and they don't have to ask, well, what happens? That makes them feel very important. Yes. When people feel special and important, then they're much more likely to listen to you, to trust you, to give grace when you make a mistake. And that's exactly what happened in our hospital because everybody was trained to do that. So I thought, well, if we 
I started to listen to, especially during the pandemic, a lot of client bashing and everybody was horrible. I know, I hate that, right? Just went on and on and on about how people were firing clients. So I thought, okay, why are people firing clients? And so I asked, I actually did a talk at AHA about this. So I, I asked a bunch of managers online, why are you firing clients? And they, they gave me all these multiple reasons. And there were, I think it all panned out to be about 16. Only two of those reasons were the pandemic. I don't want to wear a mask and I want to come in with my animal while you treat it. The rest of them were the same things that I had been managing and dealing with for 30 years as a manager. Right. And I thought, well, if these same things are happening over and over again, why don't we solve the problem? We know what the problems are. They have to do with, we blindside people. We blindside them about money. We talk over their heads. They don't understand what we're asking them to do. We, we talk down to them as the authority and they are, you know, to, to listen to the great doctor or the team. And we assume that people know more than they know about pet care. Right. Right. That they're doing things that we think are, are intentional. Everyone does. Right. No, right. Right. They just don't know. And when we start to, to look at people as we are not the authority that dictates, we are the partner that collaborates, we mm-hmm. are the wise counselor that helps, then our story changes. There's a wonderful book I always recommend to practices, and it's called Story Brand, and I talk about it in the book. And when you think about every story, every movie, every book you've ever read, there is a very definite line to the story so it starts out with there is the hero then there comes along a wise counselor and this is the merlin to the king arthur then we have uh some kind of a dilemma that happens or a challenge that happens and the wise counselor helps that person through the challenge and then the hero comes out on the other end successfully when the hero doesn't have success at the end we don't like the story it's a story. Right, right. Yeah. We want a happy ending. We I always say that happily ever after. Exactly. <laughs> Those are my so movies. When we look at where we are, I often ask veterinary hospitals when I'm telling this, who do you think the story hero is in veterinary medicine? And sometimes the team will say, well, it's the doctor. And I go, nope. Well then, oh, it must be the patient. No, the hero is the client. The, the patient's the dilemma. The doctor is the wise counselor. And you've got to put the story in place so the client comes out, the hero wins. Right. Yeah. And and we are looking at it as sometimes we want to be the hero. We want to be the winner. We want to have the adulation that the hero gets, but that's not our place. Our place is support. And, yeah. and education and the, and we are, we are Merlin to King. Arthur. I love that because it takes out that narrative that when we tell a client what we think should be done, that they should do it. Right. And that's a lot where a lot of our pain comes from mm-hmm. rather than, okay, I'm telling you what I think's wrong with your dog and here's the medicine you should give, or here's the test you should do or here, whatever. And the client says, well, I can't do that. Or I won't do that. You know, I had a client not too long ago when I was working, tell me, well, you know, Dr. Capel, I'm not going to do that with this cat. I'm not putting her through a dental. I'm not like whatever it was that I, I think it was a dental that I was recommending. She goes, I'm not doing that. She's too old and I don't have the money and blah, blah, blah. And she's a really hard client. You know, I've known her for years. And so, and so I know her personality. 
And so then it was my job to say, okay, what will you do? Will you let me give her an antibiotic injection or can you give her pills at home? Or, you know, can we keep her on, you know, some kind of pulse treatment for this infection in her mouth? And like, what are you willing to do and not feel bad about that? Right. That's not my decision. So I don't have to be mad that she won't do a dental. I don't have to be upset. I just have to help her take care of her cat the way she wants to take care of it. Exactly. And I think we miss that lesson in vet school. It was one of the reasons I wrote my book, you know, and and you wrote your book. I love the way you put it, though, that it's not your job to save them. It's your job to just help them through whatever it is that they want help with. Right. Yeah. The hero. I love that. The hero fights the battle. Yeah. Um, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi is not Luke Skywalker. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So we change, we change our mindset to what yes. we do. And and the other thing is it changes the owner's mindset because the, the then that that is a collaboration. It says to the owner, okay, I value your opinion, I value your capacity. Because yeah. I, you know, I think about my mother is 90 and she has a diabetic cat who also is arthritic. And when he was diagnosed with diabetes, my first concern was, can she even medicate this cat? Right. She's 15 and she's 90. Yeah. So, and she lives at home by herself and still right. is great. But I thought about that. Well, fortunately, this cat is the most chill cat. He's a Maine Coon and he's just like, you know, whatever. Like, whatever. And he jumps on the kitchen table and she says, come on, Charlie, it's time to get your shot. He jumps on the kitchen table, hunkers down. She gives him a shot and gets down and goes on. But that has to be a concern when we're talking about, can you do these things? Absolutely. And I think a lot of times we miss those things and we, we don't ask people enough. And this is what the hospitality part about uh, treating animals comes into play. And we talk about this in the book, we've got to honor what the client can and cannot do physically. Can they mentally do it? Some people have an inordinate fear of a shot, right? They pass out at needles. Well, you could, you can ask somebody to do that for a diabetic cat when they say, oh, I have this horrible fear of needles. And we say, okay, we need a, we need a solution. How can we find a solution? Yeah. I had a client that said that to me once because I'm definitely afraid of needles. I'm like, well, you either have to get over it. We'll have to figure out a way to get you over it or your dog's going to die. Yeah. And she was like, <laughs> oh, I guess I'm going to have to figure out how not to be afraid of the needles. And, and we worked with her and she did yeah. fine, but yeah, it's it. I I just I think that if that would help our mental health so much, if we could just get in the mindset of it's our job to give them their options, it's their job to make the choice. Yes. Whether it's euthanasia, whether it's surgery or not surgery, whether it's vaccines or no vaccines, you know, I think where our pain comes from is that judgment. Like we're judging the clients all the time and we're thinking that if we can't talk them into doing what we think should be done that we're not doing our job or there's something wrong with us or, you know, if the pet dies because the client didn't give the meds, it's on us. Mm -hmm. And it's such a, it's such a unnecessary way to think about this. And so I really, really love that you put that in your book because it's so important. Well, you know, you're a coach. The only person you can control is yourself. Right. right. And so I I have control these people. We can't. I mean, even if when I come in as a consultant, I, one of the things I tell people when we are doing our initial evaluation call and their exploratory call is, look, 
I have no authority over you. I am an outside person. I cannot tell your staff what to do and I can't tell you what to do. Right. But if you are willing to change, I will help you make the change you want to make in your practice. And I will coach you as to what they need to be. But if you're not going to listen, if you're not going to do it, don't hire me because right. I don't want you to be a failure. And you're wasting your money. <laughs> yeah. You will waste your money and you will fail and I will fail. And that makes me feel bad. So right. I don't want to fail either. So just, let's just talk about what that looks like going forward. And, and right. it really is, um, it takes the burden off of me because I can't, I can only offer what I've got. And it's the same thing for veterinary medicine. You can only offer what you've got, but you can't make people accept it. You can be a good communicator. You can yeah. build trust. You right. can talk to them on a level that they understand. And that certainly does help because you, you know, if you're speaking over their head about, I, I always give the example of gastroenteritis or your dog has gastroenteritis. And then he comes to the front desk and asks the receptionist what that means. What the heck is that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you better train your CSRs appropriately, right. but your clients are asking them questions. But that's, that's a lot of the points in the book is thinking about yourself as a coach and a counselor and someone who is there to offer education, but then be able to step back and say, I can't make people do things. You know, I can't yeah. make people do things. Yeah. Because it takes the pressure off of you. Um, and I've always thought that there's an art to that. Like if you can go in a room with a client that has a very old pet that's thinking about euthanasia and you can talk to them compassionately and empathetically enough to figure out which way they want to go. Yeah. Like I'd always be like, well, we could do blood work and they'd be like, oh, but she's so old. And then, or we could, you know, like you kind of have to like navigate that as like, oh, here's all the things that we can do. And then just be be open enough to be like, whatever decision they make, it's fine. Right. Like well, if they decide to keep that pet until they have to carry it around on a pillow, or if they decide to put it to sleep when it's still wagging its tail, that it's all fine. Like yeah, you're helping the client deal with what they want right. to deal with. And, and I think one of the things that I mentioned in the book, and this is really some data from human side of medicine, is that we don't let people tell their story. Mm. We go into the exam room, and we immediately start putting on our doctor brain. We start doing a physical exam. We start listening to the clients, telling us symptomology, and we start diagnosing. Yeah, sometimes and before we even walk in the room, right? I'm like, exactly. that one's going to be a diabetic. I can tell by their history. <laughs> exactly right. This is what's going on. And we don't let the client tell the story. And, right. and I think that is a very uh, frustrating thing for people. And so there's a doctor who actually is the... Um, uh, I can't remember her official title for Cornell Weill University Hospital. And she trains communication to the human doctors there and has done a lot of research on this. So she tested herself on how quickly she interrupted her own patients. And it was usually like 20 seconds into it, sometimes even less than that, right. seven seconds less. Yeah. So she decided that she was going to let them get their whole story out. And at the most, it on average was 90 seconds. And then at the at the most chatty client where she looked down and went, oh, great. This, one is, this, this one's this going on for days, <laughs> four minutes, four minutes. Yeah. It seems like days though, right? When you're, when you're busy and you know, there's six people yes. waiting and you're in it this. Does. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a challenge too, especially for people like me that are really fast paced. 
And but, I just want to get, I just want to fix it yeah. to yep. listen to the stories. Yep. But I do find that if you can do it, if you can remain, sometimes you learn things that you wouldn't have learned, or they'll say, you know, they'll tell you a different story than they told the technician. Yeah. And then you're like, you look at the notes and you're like, wait a minute, when did he start vomiting? <laughs> and you ask him again and they're like, oh, a week ago. Oh, well, you told the tech yesterday. Right. But and, that's how you get to the answer, right? Right. And, and I think that's it. You know, sometimes we, you know, we'll ask people questions. And, and this is funny because I've followed technicians into rooms as a consultant and listen to what they ask people and they will get off track. They will, they, I, I believe in a list. I'm a list maker from way back. Sure, right. So they should have a list of questions that they ask every single time, but people will get you off track and they never get back to the original list and they miss stuff. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is that clients don't know what's important. And right. so we don't, when we start to ask them, and I always give this explanation, like we ask them on the telephone and they give us some information and then they come into the office and we confirm we what ask we them know. again. Yeah. We ask them again. But what we should do is confirm what we've heard and ask if they thought of anything else. Right. Because we started the wheels turning. They didn't know right. what to think about until we laid right. it. Yeah. Then the well, they don't know what's important. Like right. if I say, you know, what the diarrhea look like or how many times did he do it today? Like they yeah. don't know. Like if he just right. had diarrhea once, it's a different story than he's had diarrhea for a week, right? Exactly right. So I think that they don't always know why we're asking the questions. Yes. Exactly. And we do. So then we think it's, you know. Right. They think they're they're, they're trying to hide something from us, but they right. don't know what, what matters and what doesn't. Right. And so these things are these things are important and, and technicians get really bent out of shape about it because the, the, the owners will not tell them and they go tell the doctor. And then they tell me and I'm like, Hey, I figured it out. Cause they told me something they didn't tell you. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. So you've got, you've got to give people a little grace because what mm-hmm. really is happening is they're telling little bits of the story to each person. And they're also remembering more as we start to ask more, they're starting to remember more because now we have triggered something that they think, oh, I really needed to pay more attention to that than I thought was important. Right. Or, um, it, it, I always take our point of view is much different than a client's. If you say, um, has he eaten anything unusual? Well, they're tending to think, oh, something I dropped from the table or something right. like that. We're thinking, where's his chew toy? Did he eat the squeaker out of whatever it is? Because our our path is much broader when it comes to what. Yeah. Or did you feed them a whole chicken or a steak bone or. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So we need to elaborate a little bit more like, are all his toys um, accounted for? Yeah. Or is he the type that chews up toys? Right. Or does he get into the garbage? You know, what, what has he been in? What did he get when he goes outside? Does he eat anything? Right. I think we we need to give people a little more um, compassion when it comes to telling stories and, and be good questioners and good, good questioners. Mm-hmm. We tend to cut people off before they get to tell their whole story. So open-ended questions are so important. And then I have had people say, well, how do I get away from the chatty client? And that is another uh, finesse that I've been known to like, as I'm talking back up and open the door and like, keep talking, but back out of the room and my staff laughs at me. Body language will tell. You'll be out the door, Dr. Capella across the hall and the client will still be talking at you and you'll be out there doing something on the computer, talking to them. You know, it's, it's a weird thing, but sometimes yes. you kind of have to, or just say, excuse me for a second. I got to, you know, right. I've got, but yeah, it's hard. Point. It's very hard to not, well, to try to be polite without being polite. <laughs> well, and, and even if somebody's like randomly talking about something you need to talk about, 
to say, you know, I'm really sorry. I have another appointment that's waiting for me and I, I'm committed to being on time. Right. So let us make a plan for a phone call to finish this up. Yeah. And that way that helps you keep on time. We Sometimes we think we've got to stay in that room until it's all done. But if we say to the client, being on time is very important to, I wanted to be on time for you and I want to be on time for everybody else, but I want to finish this, this conversation. It's important. Right. Let us make a plan. When will you be home from work? What time will, can I call you? Yeah. Or can I schedule so, you into my day? Yeah. yeah. So, so it's not saying I don't want to hear it. It's saying I can't hear it right now. Right. And then moving forward. I, I laugh. I always think about this, this uh, manager I had in one of my Patterson trainings. And she said, Debbie, I've got this little elderly lady that comes every day or every other day. And she buys one can of cat food. Now, the only reason she's coming is for company because she wants to visit. Right. She's lonely. So the manager takes the hit and she always goes out to the car to talk to this lady and, and sell her her one can of food. What I said, she said, but I can't get away from her. And I said, well, can you get your staff to rescue you? And she said, they have tried. They come to the door and go, Dr. So-and-so needs you. And she said, this little lady will look at her and go, you need to go back inside. She's with me now. And what? Exactly. That's awesome. <laughs> said, so she said, what can I do? And I said, you can be honest with her. You can say, I love talking to you and I'm glad to pick this conversation up tomorrow. But if I don't get back in this building, I'm not going to be here because they're going to fire me. So right. we'll talk to you tomorrow and you have a great rest of your day. There's a graceful way to get out of things if right. we plan a strategy ahead. Yeah. So or have a spiel. Like I, I'm all for having your like things that you say. Yes. To everyone the same way. And if you have a closing statement. Yes. Okay. This has been great. I'll always say, okay, well you call me and let me know how she's doing. Like, I'll just say, okay, that shuts them off. And then I say what I have to say. Okay. You call me, you know, tomorrow and let me know how he's doing. Or if he's not getting any better, I want you to call me tomorrow. Okay. Now we're going to go up to the front desk. You know, like I, I kind of, I do that. Okay. To cut them off. But if you yeah. have a few of those spiels that sound friendly, mm-hmm. you can cut them off without sounding rude. Exactly right. Well, I used to laugh because my doctors would get stuck in rooms with chatty people. And I knew they were in there not talking about medicine. They were talking about kids and football. Well, and sometimes willingly, right? Oh, like my, I'd be in there talking about something that I thought was interesting, their vacation. And my team would be like, um, excuse me, you are in here chatting about something that isn't right. necessary. Get out. Well, yeah. I tap on the door and peek my head in and go, is there anything I can help you with? Exactly. Yeah, and- it works, right? Because then the yeah. doctor's like, oh, I'm just shooting the crap. I'll get right. out of here. Yeah, I'll be out of here in a minute. I was like, okay, well, I just wanted to know because Miss Jones is in the next room. Yes. So you can, works. can say it nicely again. I love it move our doctors along because they it I always tell people I said for us if you are busy you have no idea how fast time is flying but for a client who's sitting there staring at the walls in your exam room or piddling around on their phone right it lasts it's interminable even though it's only five minutes so you have to keep uh, an awareness of that and an awareness of people in your lobby that goes back to the hospitality uh, discussions in the book is know who's there and make sure you're keep informing people if you're getting behind and you've got a client waiting, then instead of just going hiding around the corner while they're getting mad, you should go into that conversation and go, I am so sorry we are running behind. We had an emergency come in. Is there something you would you like to go run an errand? We're probably going to be another 10 minutes. Tell me right. what suits you. And people go, oh, I wouldn't send them out. Of the, oh, why wouldn't you? We can store their animal in the back. 
we mm-hmm. can send yeah, them to I've the grocery store. I used mm-hmm. to tell people, I said, look, we've got a, we got the employee refrigerator. If you want to run to the store, buy some things, I'll put them in my refrigerator. If, if that helps. While you're waiting. Yeah. 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 So you That's can smart. be creative and mm-hmm. thinking about it. One of the the tools in the book I tell about is, is anticipating what people could need, what could give them joy. And just a really simple example of what we did in our practice was we noticed that people would look at a document and they would start to do the, the stretch. The arms would lean out because they couldn't. <laughs> the over 40 crowd, right? Exactly. That needs the readers. <laughs> exactly. So we went to the Dollar Tree and we bought those funky colored glasses for a dollar a piece. That's an excellent idea. Of them at the front. They said, here, use ours. And it was just this little moment of delight that people went, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot my readers and now I can't read this document. So I'm yeah. blind. Yeah, that's that's really smart. I haven't heard so of that one. Just a little, you know, and, and, and so you develop that mindset in your team of what would people like? Yeah, and, and water. I I, ha- I got a little refrigerator behind the front desk and I kept it stocked with water. Yes. So they could say, would you like a bottle of water while you're waiting? Do you, exactly. would, would you like something to drink? You know? Yes. Well, I laugh because box for the kids or whatever. I started working in my practice in 1985. And at that point in time, we kept a pot of coffee going all day long. And when Mm -hmm. clients came in, we offered them coffee and we made it for them and we delivered it to them. Right. The exam room. And, and that hospitality started like way back then. It wasn't now we have a coffee bar where you can go and make yourself a little nitro brew. Right, right. Yeah, but it really is about how can I, you know, serve you, occupy you, make you feel comfortable, make you feel like you matter. Another thing is, I used to get um, a lot of Christmas cards with people's family pictures in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love those. Christmas, most people just kind of ditch those all. Well, I created a photo album. Yeah, and- scrapbook. We had one too. Yeah, to keep all those pictures, and we left it out so our clients could see and flip through, and they they knew how important they were to us because we kept their pictures like family pictures, and they could see. Yeah. You and know, you would see the change, like the people with their kids, and they were growing yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, we did that too. That's a that's a fun thing to do. It is a fun thing to do, Mm -hmm. but those things were important to us. And then the other thing is saving notes that people write you because you don't think about the importance of those notes, but you have a bad day. We had a big bulletin board in our break room and all the thank you notes, the gratitude for mostly for putting animals to sleep. And we would keep those up there and people would make donations to the vet school in our name. And we wanted our team to know that their work was appreciated by people. And anytime you had kind of a bad day, you could just go back there and scan through those notes of appreciation and see that people really do care and that they really. Yeah, and it it dilutes out that one bad client that comes in yelling. You know, I've I've asked coaching clients before when they, they're all upset about one client that was mad that day. And I'll say, well, how many clients were mad today? And they were like, well, just that one. And I said, well, how many did you see? And they'll be like, well, probably at least 30. I'm like, well, what's, what's the percentage of the mean ones? And they're like, oh, probably less than 5%. I'm like, yes. There you go. 95% of your people were awesome. We're awesome and love. Yeah. And it just kind of flips that negativity that your brain wants to grab onto, right? It does. We and we have a negativity bias. And when I was talking to Josh Weissman the other day, we talked about the benefits of this. I mean, because really as evolution, when we have a negativity bias, it was designed to keep us safe when we it's a protection on the veld and and nomads hunting hunting. 
but in we don't live that way today you know it's it's our, our mind has not evolved to the point where our society has evolved and those negativity biases are still there i i gave a talk one time called um, how to talk to a stranger and when we think about it, every new client who walks into our practice is a stranger and we need to make a connection with those people. Yes. But a lot of people, when I say, oh, I'm one of those people who talks to people in airports, it's hilarious. They go, oh, yeah, like that. Like, yeah. <laughs> but let me tell you, I have met the most fascinating people on airplane yeah. and had yeah. wonderful conversations with them and learned things from them that I would have never had an opportunity to learn if I had not right. engaged with those people and walked away feeling really good about it, even though, you know, it'd be a long uh, trip, a three hour layover in the middle of nowhere, you would walk away and come home going, that was really fun to talk. Yeah. To the same thing will happen with clients, right? They'll tell you something about their kids or there's something about their vacation or something about their career when they were younger. You know, if you talk to an older person that was in the military and oh, yeah. they start telling you those stories and they're fascinating. I mean, you don't always have time to hear them all, but right. just that little like touch point Mm-hmm. that, you know, my kids are the same age as your kids. Mm-hmm. And they're both in the band. You know, my kids are in the band. So if I found another band mom, I was like all over them. Yeah, band mom. And then they love you, right? Yeah. Well, and there's a, there's a lot of science behind the fact that having just a little encounter with a random stranger, like if you're standing in line at Starbucks and you just watch a child and they start to do something funny and you laugh and go, this kid is great. Yeah. That puts endorphins out into your body and you feel happier. Right. We, we really, I think back about the pandemic and I, I study neuroscience a lot. And so thinking about what that did to our our brains, it It messed us up a little bit, didn't it? It messed us up a lot. And this is one of the reasons that clients, I believe are more difficult, but we also understand it happened to us too. Right. And it is, no, we were still working. We, we were still we sitting home. Well, I sat home more than I used to, but yes. yeah. But yeah. we still dealt with a lot of trauma <laughs> because we were dealing with social unrest. We were dealing with the pandemic. We were dealing Fear with- Fear of the unknown. We were so scared because yeah. at the beginning, we had no idea what was happening. Exactly right. You know, the, the sky's falling. I'm going to die any minute. Right. Um, and and the economy, what's going to happen to our practices? Will we will we survive this? Right. Actually, we survived it a little too well. <laughs> Some like, yeah. But but all those things were affecting us too. So we can't take ourselves out of the equation of clients are being difficult. Right. Because the truth of the matter is we were we were exhausted, and we were not probably at our A game when it came right. to communication. We had a lot of other stuff we were dealing with. We were dealing with so much other stuff. And the other thing is our clients didn't know it. So we we did not give them enough information to react appropriately to what was happening in our world. And and I can remember back in about a year into the pandemic, I just wrote this letter that said, we just want you to understand what's going on here. Like 12 million people adopted animals. People, we're having to split our staff because we we can't not work with if we get COVID we all have to quarantine so we're right. half one day and half the next and it's very disjointed our workflows are all a train wreck and yeah we're booking way way out because of all these things so we want you to be prepared we want you to know ahead of time right. that when you get that card in the mail go ahead and call don't wait until the last minute like you always have been able to you can't do that anymore right. and if your animal starts to show signs of illness don't wait right. like you, you know wait until see you call yeah, and we can't we can't rush you in last minute we don't have we the can't space do it anymore and because of that I can tell you one of my clients used the letter and she said Debbie this is incredible she said we 
sent this letter out to our clients going, here's where we are. Here's what's going on. And they called us and said, can we help you? We'll come and be a receptionist for you. Right. And she said, it was like Christmas when everybody brings us food and stuff, because they really felt bad for us and they supported us. And she said, and that support was like a lifeline to us because we saw, even though we were just buried in work, that people did care for us and were willing to help us when we shared what was happening with them. But if we kept it all to ourselves and assumed that they knew, then no wonder they got mad when they couldn't come in like they always had. But it's about pushing information out too. That's another part of hospitality. Yeah, you have to communicate. You have to push out information. You cannot blindside people. That is what upsets them more than anything is surprises. Yeah, they don't want to change. Mm-hmm. Well, we are going on and on. Oh. I could go on for two more hours, but maybe we should try to wrap this one up. We and probably we'll, we'll schedule another one because I, I think that we could, there's a lot of things we need to talk about. I have a whole list of questions that I didn't even ask you because oh. all this has been going so well. So if you're willing, we'll come back and do this again yeah. when we have time. Um, but tell me um, maybe what we didn't talk about that you wanted to make sure you said, and then I want you to tell them where to get the book and where to find out more about you and, you know, all that stuff. Well, I think the most important thing that I want people to know about the book is that hospitality is external, but is also internal. Hmm. If we treat our team with equal hospitality. I love that. Then we reduce turnover because I think in veterinary medicine, our big problem is retention. Mm-hmm. When we, yeah, because it's a hard job, right? It is a hard if job. If you don't like flood your team with love and care, yes, they're just going to find another hard job. Exactly <laughs> right. That pays them probably more. Well, right. And why? And why would they be loyal to you if you didn't exactly. treat them well? If you don't treat them well. So understanding how to communicate within the team, eliminating drama, building a culture that is joyful, and and sometimes we are the joy in people's lives. Work can be that because their home life may be a train wreck. Right. But when they come to work, we can be the respite from that. And that's a great deal of what the book teaches. But we also, by teaching hospitality skills, we eliminate people from yelling at us and our lives become better. We build relationships with clients. They say yes more to care Mm -hmm. because they trust you that you have their back. And that you're not just trying to gouge them for money, which is, you know, a whole other talk. But I, I really want people to understand that that this book is developed to train your team with. And if you've read a little bit of it, you understand that yes. periodically there are little exercises that make mm-hmm. the work stick. Little questions. And yeah, I love because that. Because I think a lot of times we take training and we, you know, as a speaker, I can tell you about 10% actually sinks in. Uh, of anything that yeah, I because there's so much there is so much and people you have to have action it. steps at least yes. little ones yeah. so that's what this book is it's designed to have a chapter to talk to your team about the chapter read it together and then there is an exercise that you do either individually or together that makes that training stick with the people who are taking it and because it makes them think beyond what I just kind of spewed out to them or what they just read, it makes them take it into themselves personally and work through, how do I feel about that? Or when did this situation happen to me? Or how do I feel 
as a consumer when I go out and I have poor service? What does that do for me? How do I feel about that? Right. That that makes you much more likely to understand why it's important to give better service to other people. Um, so that is that is the main premise of the book, learning how to serve others and your customers and yourselves internally so that you have a place to go that you really enjoy working and clients that you love working with and right. you're successful in your business because that is the other outcome of this is that people really kind of willingly give you money when you give them great service yeah and a great absolutely. experience yeah yeah and i i think that so many so many veterinarians are focused on that day-to-day number rather than it's an investment in your team and investment in the client relationships that will pay off in the future. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I love that. Well, thanks yeah. for doing this. Tell people where they can find you if they want to find your book or if they want to find out more about you and what you do. The easiest place is just to go to my website. It's uh, Debbie Boone, cvpm.com, D-E-B-B-I-E, uh, Debbie spelling. There's a link to the book on there. We're actually going to have a whole page set up that's just about the book and the trainings that are related to that because I also do leadership workshops based in hospitality and team trainings based on hospitality. And then all my other uh, resources are there. I do a monthly blog that is on the website. I have a recommended reading list that's on the website. And I have some tools that are free giveaways that are on the website. So there's... Uh, uh, Everything that you want to know about me is probably there. I love it. All right. And I'll put that in the notes too when the, when the podcast comes out. Right, thank well, you. thank you so much. This has been great. Thank I you. Lo- I love everything you talked about. And um, I think uh, I agree with everything you talked about. So that's always fun. That is, that <laughs> when is we're fun. on the same page, we're like, oh yes. yeah, that's good. That's good. Yes. So I appreciate it so much. So everybody have a beautiful week and go out there and be kind to your clients and your, and your team, right? Get some hospitality going. Get some hospitality. All right, everyone. I'll talk to you again next week and go check out Debbie Boone. Bye. Bye everyone. Bye Debbie. Bye.